Hi, podcast listeners. This is C. Culbertson. And this is Lilia Schreifer. Lily and I are graduate student interns at the Colorado Review, where we're newly hosts of the Colorado Review podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about poetry and prose. In partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. And today we'll talk about poetry, writing through and after cancer, what the language of Euripides, Homer, Shakespeare, Dickinson can teach us about grief, and stay tuned to hear Miss Benici read from her collection, Night Burial. But first, because we're starting the podcast fresh, um, we should introduce ourselves, don't you think? I do think. <laughs> okay. Why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, hi, podcastlings or podcast listeners. We had a whole debate on what to call y'all <laughs> before this, so yeah. But uh, I am Lilia. I'm a first-year fiction writing MFA candidate and graduate teaching assistant at CSU, obviously. Why is that in there? Uh, before coming to grad school, I – this is weird. Why don't you read my oh, bio? <laughs> okay. All right. I can do that. Uh, Lilia Schreifer – wait. How, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, it's Schreifer. Okay. All right. There's just a random Y that doesn't belong that should be an I. <laughs> I got it. Lilia Schreifer is a first-year fiction writing MFA candidate and graduate teaching assistant at Colorado State University. Before coming to grad school, Lilia worked at Lambda Literary and as a paralegal. She's also a playwright and alumna of Brandeis University, Second Street Writers Workshop, and the National Theater Institute. In New York, Lily performed as an actor at 13th Street Rep, Dixon Place, Playwrights Horizons, New York Musical Festival, and Columbia University. Lilia is happy around dogs and books. Still true. That's a cool bio. It's pretty cool. I mostly pretended to be a paralegal uh, <laughs> to make hourly wage while I went off and did theater things, but I think that's everyone. I gotcha. Okay, so let me introduce C, unless C would like to introduce themselves. Um, yeah, why don't you introduce me? Yes, we should all experience <laughs> the art of someone else telling nice things about us. That, that's very true. Okay. Yours seems short, so I'm going to read really slow and in a podcast voice. <laughs> all right. C. Culbertson is a first-year MFA candidate in Gil, Gil, or Gil, 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 Gil. Ronda Fellow at CSU. Can you say what that means? Oh, yeah, sure. Um... So uh, the Gil Ronda Fellow at Colorado State University, um, basically uh, I'm a graduate teaching assistant and I'm teaching creative writing, I'm TAing for creative writing classes, and I'm also doing some administrative stuff for the program. It basically means C works five times as hard as the rest of us. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and gets his, it gets five times less sleep. I mean... <laughs> So that is awesome. And C is also an editorial assistant and the head podcast editor at the Colorado Review. And their poems have found a roost at Nat Root and Bomb Cyclone. During today's episode, we are going to talk with Kate Bolton Benici, who grew up in rural Alabama and holds degrees from Harvard, NYU Law, UC Riverside, and UCLA. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Arts and Letters, The Southern Humanities Review, Image, Tapella Quarterly, and elsewhere. 
She teaches early modern English, literature, and creative writing at UCLA. Benici's collection, Night Burial, is the winner of the 2020 Colorado Prize for Poetry. Hi, Kate. Hello. So what was your entry into Night Burial? For listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the book and your project? Sure. So most of the poems in the collection I wrote after my mom um, died of ovarian cancer. And I also had young daughters. And so I was thinking a lot about that relationship, you know, and that sort of confluence and disintegration, you know. Um, And so I was thinking and trying to figure out how to process, um, you know, her death, my kids, um, you know, growing up um, and how those things related to each other. And then because I'm a poet, part of, you know, my, my processing was, oh, I turned to really to think through what was happening, you know, it was through poetry. Um, and for a while I couldn't, you know, I couldn't write anything that I would think of as a poem about any of this. Um, so I kept a journal and when she was um, home on hospice and I was there, I mean, I just kept sort of took notes on everything from, you know, morphine dosages to when she was puking, you know, um, what the doctor said when they called to, you know, random thoughts I was having, um, things that I was reading at, at the time I was um, in the PhD program at UCLA. And so I was working on my dissertation. So I would have, you know, notes about different books that I was, um, you know, trying to dissertate about all, all there together, kind of in the same space. And then, um, You know, as time went by, I started wanting to write more poems about this. But for me at that time, just sort of entering into a free verse space was not really working. So I I started, um, the first thing I wrote was one of the sort of the center poems in the book. And it's a linked poem. sequence called in your absence there are no mortal banquets which is a line from one of the homeric hymns to hestia goddess of the hearth um and it actually it doesn't really look like it but it's based on um a crown of sonnets and so i was sort of linking um you know the last lines with first lines but it's much more compressed and and sort of fractured or fragmented Um, and once i once i had that and and, and, and had a bit of a vessel, you know, for thinking through some of these constellated issues, then, then the rest of the poems kind of came, came from that. Yeah, one thing I, I went to um, when I first kind of got into Night Burial was this uh, epigraph by Julie Kristeva, and it, it makes me think about... Um, kind of your entry into poetry itself. Um, you talked about how um, what you, the kind of writing you were working on before didn't really fit this project until you started working in free verse. Um, so I'm familiar with Kristeva from um, her book, Black Sun. And there's this line I always return to um, 
the excess of affect has thus no other means of coming to the fore than pr to produce new languages, strange concatenations, idiolects, poetics. I wonder if you could speak to how this kind of sense of working through um, maybe even just embodying, you know, going through all of this, how that kind of creates a kind of a language, a kind of poetics. Yeah, and that that's a wonderful quote from Kristeva. And and so so my one of my entry points into you know her work, which helped me think about all of this, was this essay Stabat Mater. Um, and in that one, the the essay um, includes this sort of critical work on um, thinking about the Virgin Mary and Kristeva's experience having just had a child, you know, and so really bringing into to direct conversation the critical and the personal and creating a kind of new language by their proximity because they're, well, the, the typography on the page separates the two things, but then, you know, the reader conflates them, you know, and so it, um, the, the affective resonances, you know, and each experience sort of blur into each other to bring those quotes together. Um, and so I think that that, that was part of what was happening for me in terms of, you know, bringing the different experiences together of parenting, um, losing, losing a parent, um, being in a, a spousal relationship. My husband's mom had died a year and a half early before, um, you know, and sort of, sort of navigating these different partnerships and then teaching, um, you know, and so, um, sort of going back and forth between these different language threads, you know, in a way. And then, so in my, I'm going to segue this a little bit, but um, in my dissertation, um, which hopefully will one day be more than just my dissertation, but we'll see. Um, I, one of the center um, critical lenses for me is Lucretius, who was, um, you know, sort of one of the first physicists you could think of, um, and poet from antiquity, he was writing in Latin, and in the Lucretian universe, um, there are just bodies and space, bodies in space, moving one you know, against the other, um, so sort of having these different conjunctions and separations. And that's what there is. Um, and so I started, that became this lens for me, both in my critical writing and poetic writing of just thinking about how these conjunctions happen as we're all just moving in space at the level of the cellular, you know, and the, the more like visibly embodied. Um, and so thinking about that in terms of a poetic practice, you know, um, was something that I found happening in this work. 
and in the somewhat parallel dissertation, which includes memoir and poems, along with, um, you know, a, a literary criticism about early modern literature. And that's why there's this slippage between the two. I mean, the first chapter of my dissertation is about Iphigenia at Aulis, you know, and then Iphigenia features in Night Burial as well. So they're just, you know, there's kind of conversations um, across genre, even as genre is sort of collapsing a little bit. Wow. So first of all, Kate, um, I definitely want to start using the word dissertate as it's from <laughs> now on, which I have not heard before, but there, that is lovely. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I have, I have a lot of thoughts what you just said, but I think the first one that comes to mind is you're talking a lot about linguistic threads moving through the work. Um, and so I find it fascinating that that is happening alongside this, at least from my reading, that there aren't so many objects in the poem. What remained imprinted in my heart reading it was the blue shirt that kept coming up throughout the poem. And so it, it actually led me to wonder if when writing a poem and an object becomes a symbol or a metonymy for a world or a life, does that object continue to retain that after the poem's been written? Yes, yes. I think that, oh, the blue shirt. <laughs> um, I think that, that they do. And so you, for me, you know, if you have an object like a blue shirt, so I have this, you know, this poem where I talk about my mother and my last picture and she's wearing this blue shirt. Um, I think there's a lot of blue in the book anyway. Um, so it's almost, it's almost like the blue, the blue shirt becomes the thing, you know, the sort of metonymy that you're talking about that, that sort of stands in or the part of the whole. And then and then the poem in its little fragmented way or, or small way also becomes the object, you know? And so I think that was another way that I was thinking about the function of the poems. I, ha I, have, a, I have a poem in here called Burnt Offering. Um, and, I, and I did think of each of these little poems as being my little objects of offering, you know? Um, and so what both both a way to document you know the experience and memory and um, um, lived self and then also what I could then offer my mother now that she's not here with me you know at least this is um, this is what what I've made you know um, for you, with you, alongside you, in your absence, you know, all the prepositions there. Um, and in fact, when I had to go, um, my grandmother, who I write about, my mother's mother in the book, she died this in November. And when, when she was dying, I went home to help. Um, and it was actually just, you know, just a little bit after this book came out. And so, there were these 
thinking about even book as object, you know, there were these two ways in which I had such gratitude for its presence because I could show my grandmother in the hospital, um, you know, and then even when, when, when she was sort of forgetting who I was, she told me that she had this granddaughter who had won the Colorado prize. Um, and, and then I could also take them to the cemetery, read my mom some poems, you know, and be like, you're, you're still here with me, you know, and there's this way in which, um, you know, these objects are enabling continued conversation. Yeah. And you just made me think too of the poem with the, I actually have it pulled up. When she came home from the hospital, my daughter's painted my mother's nails turquoise. Did we leave the polish on? And there's a hyphen. So to me, it's what you're describing is a permanence in of memory, but at the same time, there's a kind of permanent question. Um, that uncertainty was, it was one of my favorite poems actually uh, throughout the book because of that. I don't know if there's a question there. I just had to express but, that. Yeah, so we have this, I have a picture that I took, you know, of like my kids painting my mom's nails. And I mean, I remember the polish is turquoise. There's the turquoise bottle, you know, so it's, it's like the, so Bart's what has been right there documented, you know, and is no more, but the, but I only get that moment that's documented and I can't remember you know, what happened. And then, so those kind of things became haunting for me. It's like, I can't, rem what do I do about not being able to remember? You know, when they're the little, when certain things drop out, what do we do with that? You know, and that's, what do we do with that absence? And that was, you know, something that poems like that are trying to figure out, I guess. Yeah, I, I love that question, you know, what do we do with that? And I, I think in a lot of ways as, as writers, we are trying to answer that question for ourselves and our projects, right? Um, I think in, in some ways, um, and this is something both both Lily and I were, were talking about, is the way it kind of moves from kind of a foreground to a background, you know, there's this like temporal crossing that your speaker makes. We were curious whether you wrote this while experiencing your mother's journey through cancer or if, or if it happened after. So before and after, very much. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of, in terms of numbers of poems, probably more of them were written after. Um, you know, like the, the sequence I was talking about where um, the, the In Your Absence, There Are No Mortal Banquets, and then there are some that are sort of dealing with the after. Um, and then, but I had also written some poems a couple before she was diagnosed with cancer when my children were little. I mean, they're still pretty little, but, you know, um, that seemed really relevant you know, like the poem Bloodlines, that's an address to my daughter that I wrote right after she, uh, right after she was born. Um, and, you know, and thinking about my mother's experience of giving birth to me and then giving birth to a daughter 
and and what the body is processing in those moments and it the way I had a different understanding of my mother, you know, having the ones I went through that experience. Um, and then there are some poems that I wrote when she was sick and knowing most likely what was going to happen. Um, there's in, um, it was a common night was, was one that I wrote, um, when it was not a foregone conclusion that she would die, you know, there was um, the, the survival rates for ovarian cancer are not good, you know, and there's, there's no good screening tool. I mean, it's a very problematic, deadly cancer. Um, and we, you know, we knew that's what she had. She'd had her surgery, there was, but she still had chemo options when that poem was written. Um, and then there's, you know, another one where I talk about being in the infusion center with her. And that wasn't, that was another, um, you know, and at those moments, I was trying to, um, e either if I wrote them while she was sick and kind of being in that process, because her journey with cancer was about two years, you know, sometimes it's a lot longer, sometimes it's shorter. Um, so trying, I was trying to kind of, you know, document that. Um, so some of them are written before we knew what was going to happen. And then, and then I would say more were written after she died, but trying to think through either the dying, you know, the, the more immediate death and burial, um, or the, the journey of sickness, you know, and what, um, how to think about that retrospectively. I, I didn't write as much, you know, and I, it's another book to write more about her life. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's not what's in this one as much because I was so consumed before and after her dying with, you know, the fact of her illness. So I think that it's a, it's a different project than to write more about her health and life. The way that you seem to both artistically and spiritually separate those two reminds me and I'm I'm I the first encounter I've had with um Julia Kristeva was upon reading your introduction so I've only read um taken a superficial look at Sabbat Mater but I did notice a connection between your poem recurrence yesterday your father looked so young I said like a kid you said like someone who still has a mother and that that someone there to me signifies a lot of this sublimation of, of femininity and the maternal that Kristeva was talking about. I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how Kristeva might be woven into your work. Sure. So I think that so so Kristeva is coming at things as you know um, with a sort of psychoanalytic linguistic approach that is much more brilliant and learned than anything, you know? Um, so I'm just sort of um, taking these little threads of her work. Um, but what is really fascinating about what she does is so often, you know, write about literature and write about art and, and process it in really exciting ways. And then that Stabat Mater essay that brings together um, 
the, the critical and the personal, you know, was really meaningful for me because she's looking at how, you know, what iconography of the Virgin Mary does in terms of giving or limiting women's roles, you know, and what you can, um, how you can think through the female self. And meanwhile, Kristeva is writing about having given birth to a son, you know, and what, what that, how that's paralleling and diverging these mythologized, you know, relationships uh, or diverging from. And so, so I think all these things are kind of percolating, you know, as I'm trying to think through both the scholars I'm reading and understand their work um, and then make art that is, is responding in a way and engaging with that and then also with, with the lived experience. And so, I, as I mentioned, my, my husband's mom um, had also been, had a uh, terminal illness and had, had died on hospice these uh, roughly 18 months before my mom did. And so the, our girls had been through this already with their other grandmother. And so it was just this moment. I mean, this was an actual thing that, that my, that my daughter said and where, you know, sort of this kind of lighthearted thing. And I'm like, uh, whatever I said, you know, dad looks so young and, you know, like a kid, like, and she's like, Oh, like someone who still has a mother as opposed to you old people and your moms are dead. Cause that's what happens. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's her world experience as you get to a certain point, your mom dies because that's what, what she saw so quickly. And that was like this, you know, moment for me in which I was like, oh, yes, this is, this has really happened. This is, we, we have reached this turning point and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't when we thought it would happen, but in a weird way, we are old enough for it to happen, you know? So it's, I, I don't know, it was just this kind of stunning thing. And so I, I wrote it down, you know, because I didn't know what to do with it. And then it came out in that poem, Recurrence, which is about, you know, my mom's cancer recurring. Um, and just thinking about, I mean, it really, I guess the book could have been called Recurrence, you know, it's in terms of thinking about the temporalities that you were, you were mentioning, see, you know, um, and the way there's always this kind of circling, circling, which um, is never a perfect circle, is really a spiral, you know, so we're always changed. Um, while, while we try and navigate the things that are coming back around in a new way. Yeah. That, this, this like idea of there being a turn or, um, you know, as you say, a spiraling through or recurrence. I think all of these words just are wonderful ways to kind of, kind of talk about just not, not even just grief, but moving through these lived experiences in our lives that when we get to them, we're like, oh, here it is, <laughs> right? So yeah, and I, I so I, I think that's, I think that's something that as writers is, you know, we're looking to each other, you know, to, for help, for ways to work through these things, to deal with that turn, that turn um, when it comes to us. And um, I, I noticed um, in my read that there's a few um, lineages that you're working through. Um, you've talked about how 
um, that kind of maternal relationship um, with the son or with the mother, um, how that how that kind of becomes mythologized. Um, you spoke earlier about um, working through the Homeric um, hymns, for example. Um, but then I noticed that another um, set of writers you're working through in your texts, you know, whether it's Chris Deva or Emily Dickinson, or even the translators of Homer and Euripides who, who are women, how did that help you work through this and kind of develop this project in that way? That's such a good question. And, um, and it captures so much of what I was doing, maybe not always consciously, you know, just um, reaching for, reaching for voices that would, that would carry me along a little bit, you know, I think, I think that's like what we are doing so often every time we read, you know, um, it's just what's keeping us afloat and in these different ways. So I was, um, you know, working on my dissertation, which focuses on 16th and 17th century English literature. Um, so I was reading writers in the 16th, 17th century, and then because of the time period, so many of, of those writers were interested in the writings from antiquity. And so in translating Latin and Greek. Um, and so when I was, um, the, the, um, what I was working on it with the Iphigenia at Aulist, for example, I think that's probably the best example of, of this, um, the translation that I was working with was, is a manuscript, so handwritten um, copy in a notebook by a young woman, Lady Jane Lumley, um, who write, wrote this, um, the estimated date is, is mid 1550s. So she would have been, you know, in her late teens, just married um, from this significant family, you know, in early modern England. Um, and she's got this notebook of translations. And, you know, there's a, the scholarly work is, is so much on, you know, does she, is she consulting the Latin translation or is she doing just the Greek? And it's a very um, kind of abbreviated translation. So who else is she using to help her? And um, how interesting that there's this, this young woman who, was clearly, um, um, you know, uh, educated in Latin and Greek and, you know, more, more akin to her uh, male counterparts. Um, but I was just so interested in this manuscript and seeing her handwriting, you know, and then in the story of Iphigenia is so often a story about daughter and father, because it's, you know, um, Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus are there and, and the Greek army is ready to sail to Troy and they're going to go get Helen back uh, and the, the winds are bad so the ships can't sail and the priest says, you know, you've got to go get your daughter Iphigenia and she's got to be sacrificed. So they, they bring the daughter and tell her she's going to marry Achilles. And that's why she comes with her mother. Um, but really she's going to be sacrificed. Um, so they, they have to slit her throat and then she turns into a deer and 
Um, but what's so interesting to me about Lumley's translation is the conversation between Clytemnestra, the mother, and Iphigenia right before Iphigenia goes. And there's all this, there's this rhyme and repetition and echoing between their voices, um, which, which ends in Iphigenia's slaughter and sacrifice. And so that's, that's the moment that I focus on in my critical writing. And it also just, it's so aching. It's just a person reading it and, you know, thinking about my own mother being gone um, and the way through these little sort of pieces of language that connect them across the, their dialogue. Um, and so, so, so what actually happened with, with this poem about Iphigenia and about my dissertation more broadly is that I didn't, I didn't know what to say critically just yet, but I knew there was this one point that I felt like was an entry point into the text. And so I, I said, I, I ended up writing this poem about it. And that was how I came to understand my own critical thinking. Um, which is a process I teach my students now because I'm like, you know, sometimes you can't just write a straightforward essay. Sometimes you can't just write a straightforward poem. You need these different ways into it. And so writing the poem helped illuminate for me how I was thinking critically, also helped me understand how I was trying to think about time and these different voices and the simultaneity of them. You know, the, 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 Iphigenia the, as, a, as a lived and fictional and translated character here with me, you know, with her absent mother, with my absent mother, all existing on the page, you know, from in our souls and in their separate spheres. But the things come together, you know, in, in the poems. Um, and so, so that was really what, what I ended up coming to is just that, that you know these these different voices are important and are presently existing you know um you know not just like read dickinson and then write an essay or think about it but but read it and and bring it into the body of the poem you know the words of the poem and then that helps me process me write you know and get some kind of result. <laughs> it was a great result. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Kate, I, it sounds like you have, um, I wanna say you've made contact, some kind of contact trans historically with a kind of, with language in a way that maybe writers young in their working life today could really learn from. Um, you know, so I, I was going to ask if you find that coming into contact with different vernaculars, I would say, as they evolve and change over time, um, and even just coming into contact with geographically different vernaculars. I know from your bio, you live from coast to coast. Um, so thinking in terms of time and space, uh, how that kind of contact can really if you feel it can open a door uh, to the nature of stunning with language and surprising with language and doing all the things we want to do with with 
language in our work? Yes. So, I mean, for me, you know, I'm from this little town, Alabama, and then was on the East Coast for a while and, and now in California. Um, so I love that. Yeah. So all these vernaculars kind of percolating, you know, um, and then that's so great and helpful to think about the kind of vernaculars across time because that is sort of what's happening when I'm trying to read, you know, these um, 16th, 17th century pieces and then um, kind of the language of criticism and, you know, um, letting all these things bleed in. And so um, I do think that that's really helpful. You know, I find it helpful in my teaching to just bring, um, you know, a number of different voices and critical perspectives and time periods together because it just opens up different points of contact and every point of contact can be a, you know, a spark um, to, to help me or you or, you know, whoever's trying to make some kind of art happen, you know, um, sometimes the spark is what you need or the little friction is what you need um, to, to help bring something into presence. And so, so mixing these things together, you know, um, it, it just, it just helps, you know, it's like the more you read, the more you listen, you know, um, across time and space, um, then you, I think, then one gets a better sense of how our own words can enter into the time and space and, and be part of a conversation, you know, um, with the dead and the living. With this idea of, of you know, having a conversation um, with the dead and the living um, across time and space, you know, as a poet myself, one entryway into thinking about that when I'm even just designing how the poem like fits on the page, right, is, you know, is form, is, is whether I'm using inherited forms like a sestina or a sonnet, um, or, you know, if I'm going full free verse or like open fielding it, you know? So there's this uh, sestina, which opens and closes with a line of Dickinson. And then um, as Lily was talking about earlier, that, that poem with the image of the nail polish and how it just kind of, kind of leaves off. And there's that sort of, sort of ambiguity or like this insistence on kind of breaking from the poems that come after and before um, each section, particularly the section night burial. Um, I wonder if that's as much a part of the telling. Yeah, as I mentioned, form was really important for me as an opening and a kind of vessel. Um, and maybe I use the word vessel because in, in my um, studies of how um, of the 16th, you know, 17th century, there's so much this idea of the female body is leaky vessel. And definitely the notion, which is, you know, used, used generally used very critically. Um, and, and certainly the idea of the leaky vessel um, and fluid connections um, and passages within 
and, um, you know, between bodies, especially the bodies of women and girls, you know, was, was at the heart of this book, you know? So I think thinking of form as a vessel and form as a leaky vessel, um, and, and claiming the, um, how that can work to make really something interesting, you know, was, was a part of my process. And then, and then sometimes it just really fractures and fragments, you know, and the thing about the night burial section, I think is that there, there's some of the other poems are a little more, um, you know, dense on the page, like the Sestina, it just, you know, it's, it's a much longer form. And so the night burial section um, maybe is quieter and, and kind of insists upon, you know, the, um, the isolation of more of little lonelier moments in, in the, the arc of the book, um, which is what part of the arc of grief maybe that is recurring. Okay, this is Night Burial. Quiet and you are not among the quick, but the dead. I quickened once in your womb, you who felt my own quickening, rested your hand on my round belly at 20 weeks, riding the Pensacola, a daughter reached, stretched, pressed her hand slight against my skin to your swan soft hand. Toward you, we keep reaching for what we cannot touch. We keep trying to send signals in texts, tulips, rocks stacked day by day, along the walkway. Look upon your servant, looking homeward, lying without life while we lift up our love as formless offering. Thanksgiving, I sat with her in the sun. Sky blue is a church fan imprinted with the rapture, neither of us delirious in the cumulative. She was smiling. fled to the woods by light of morning, found a hollow tree, climbed in the tree. One could pick roots, small sustaining things. My other grandmother has stopped sewing. Does this make her no longer who she was? I gave her a porcelain thimble from the airport store, now breakable and impractical, the object meant to give her one last force. After the rains, a path of needles. After the winds, a path of pins. Just wear it, Mama, we're washing the rest. She wears a blue fishing shirt, not soft enough, all we have without vomit. My last picture taken the morning before. How to know someone is dying. Check their feet for modeling. We covered yours, hers. When? Before or after? Before is short, but the after. In the opera, Manon speaks to sing the soul's leaving. Chant, I can just hear above all that's inland of the interior. 
keen and cry out for the kingdom what was knitted phrase and keeps no terrible watch. My husband holds my hand a day after his birthday, which would be his mother's birthday, were she here for her birthday. My mother fell into a sleep that for hours was a bad sleep until it was no longer sleep. For one minute, I left the room and my mother stopped breathing forever. For one minute, I left the room. And what does it mean? Now I breathe this forever in. She left the room and she stopped breathing. I left the room and you stopped breathing. You left the room and I stopped breathing. Enter Mary, enter Holy Spirit. I say enter Holy Ghost. Enter and be merciful, any ghost at all. Daughters sing from the back seat of snowstorms, their paper voices interwoven one an inch behind. Thus they sing the sound of their own yet unmeasured selves. On foot, my daughters aim stiff arms, a stop to cars in the crosswalk. Careful, mama, these drivers will flat run you down. Give me haint blue inside of which to not let you and I will choose the other, not the color to keep your ghost outside, but inside. Outside on the porch, it is too cold, colder than you remember, your arms blue under blue sleeves, blue veins, what I could see. We must keep the warm in, keep you here, how you might still be. When she came home from the hospital, my daughters painted my mother's nails turquoise. Did we leave the polish on? I am mad at you being dead. Being dead, who can I be mad at and where? Why couldn't you stay in the maze? You, she, we, I can't. It's gone. Feel it. Night burial, a winter sky, a winter ground not quite frozen, not quite Christmas, quiet. We left together, leaving you to become what you will become, what we will become without you with us. We left you at the edge of town in your new dead town. The priest said, you must be in the ground before dark. It was dark out when you stopped breathing, but when we laid you to rest, not quite, not quite dark, starlit. You lie here, do you like it here? Do you love here? You are loved here. Here, I brought you zinnias. An ancient loop, someone looking means someone's gone. Something unequal makes its way forward. Your mother dies, the most ordinary thing. Thank you so much for reading. Yeah, I have 
I have chills. Yeah. Um, especially the formless offering that we've made for you as our first podcast <laughs> with as many bumps and bumps and all those things. I were I think we're both and everyone listening is just I'm just grateful for our time together. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was such an honor. So nice talking with you. Um, Lily, I think you had... Well, okay. So we wanted to also have a short opportunity to get to know you outside of your poems, uh, now that we've gotten to know inside. And because we're on Zoom, uh, <laughs> we're just curious. How tall are you? How tall am I? Five, five and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's this kind of thing where we've kind of been meeting each other for the first time. and you and I met in person yesterday. <laughs> oh, how wonderful <laughs> that. I, kinda, I wanted to ask you as well, what is that guilty pleasure genre you go to? Like Westerns, true crime. Murder mysteries. <laughs> Murder mysteries. I called it. I called it. I had no reason to think. I just knew. And I was like, true crime, yes. murder mystery. Yes. Um, and there we go. And then in order to make my guilty pleasures part of my real life, I am I am teaching true crime drama in the 17th century this spring. So trying to bring it, bring it together. <laughs> so I function. Uh, jack of all trades. Or, or Jane of all trades. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us on our inaugural episode of the Colorado Review Podcast. I, I thought we agreed on podcastlings. They got me. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we'll be talking with Brandon Krieg, the 2019 winner of the Colorado Prize for Poetry, author of Magnifier. That's everything, do you think? I do think. <laughs>